Grace Chapel podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We're so glad you're here. Before we get started, we want to remind you of the importance of being connected into a local church body. Podcasts are a gift from God, but are meant to be supplemental and not substitute or replace the gathering of the saints in worship in the Word. With that being said, we pray that this teaching would bless you, equip you, and encourage you in your walk with Christ. Well, we are going to continue in our series on spiritual warfare. We're wrapping it up this morning. We've, we've talked about our enemy, kind of who he is and what he does. He's out to steal, kill, and destroy. And his primary method is lies and deception. That's how he operates. We've talked about our Savior. You know, our role in spiritual warfare, first and foremost, is just trusting Jesus, who he is and what he does. He is the truth that cuts through the lies, And he is the one that brings rescue and salvation. He fights on our behalf. And so we trust him primarily when we're facing spiritual warfare. But then last Sunday, we kind of moved into the third part, which is our role. We do have a part to play in spiritual warfare. And so we began to talk about how we take ground, how we take territory when there's strongholds and struggles in our life the, the ultimate stronghold is Jesus. He is our strong tower. And so our battleground is learning to run to him for rescue and using the tools that he's given us, using the weapons that he's given us. And so we unpacked that a bit last week. And so now this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about just being ready for battle. In the day in, day out, when Tuesday hits and something's going sideways, Do I know how to respond in that moment? What do I do just in the moment? And so that's where we're heading this morning. So let me pray one more time for us and just ask the Lord to to lead and guide us through this. So Jesus, one more time, we just come before you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the word made flesh. You make it come alive. And so Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us this morning, to equip us, help us to, to recognize what the enemy is up to and be able to respond appropriately. Thank you that you give us everything that we need to walk in victory. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the victor, that you're with us, you're for us, you're in us. Help us to become more and more familiar with the tools that you've given us that not only can we walk in victory in our own lives, but God, we can be a resource to one another that we can mutually encourage each other in our walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So the idea of the message this morning is that we would just have some things like easily accessible to us. So when the enemy hits, when my flesh pops up and I'm struggling, when the world around me that can swirl and be chaotic is just right in my face, that I can quickly recognize what's happening for what's really going on and respond. See, if I'm just kind of unaware that I'm even facing a battle or I'm unaware of the ways the enemy might come at me, then man, I can just be lost in confusion and not even recognize Here's the real battle in front of me and here's the way I can respond to it. Jesus has given me a response to that specific thing. And so what I wanna encourage you with this morning is don't just hear these kind of, there's like five categories we're gonna look at. 
I don't want you just to hear these and go, oh, cool, I'm a, I got it. Okay, I remember those, I've got it. I wanna encourage you, let's let this stuff sink down inside of us because the more familiar I am with the way the enemy's gonna come at me, the more quickly I can respond with the tools God has given me. Um, I don't know if any of you guys are watching the little videos that we get kind of during the week that go along with our discipleship journey study. But in the video this week, Pastor Dave talked about it through the context of of sports. And he talked about how, like in football, for example, part of why you do all the practice and all the training is so that it becomes second nature. So in the middle of the game, you're not sitting there pausing and go, wait, hold on, time out. This guy's running at me. How, How do I tackle again? What, what, wait, what's our strategy? What's our game plan? It's just in you and you can just see it and respond. Oh, they're running this play. They're going that direction. I know this, I prepared for it. I'm right there, I'm ready. I can play fast. And so that's the idea is that these five things are our primary ways that the enemy comes at us. Can I see it for what it is? And can I quickly respond? That's the idea. So number one, the first way the enemy comes at us is he looks to distort. He looks to distort. Satan works to twist or distort our view of God, ourselves, or our circumstances. He wants to distort our view of who God is, who we are in him, or the reality of our circumstances around us. He wants us to see something with a warped or twisted viewpoint. That's off. We see this like in the very first time Satan shows up in the scripture in the garden, Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? His, his first approach is to confuse Eve, get her to question what God said. He even purposely misquotes God. Did he say you can't eat of any tree in this garden? Well, no, that's not what he said, but he wanted to twist or distort her view. This week, one of our kids had their wisdom teeth taken out. And you know, one of the things that happens when you get like a little surgery like that is you go under anesthesia. And when you're coming out of anesthesia, if you're just a bystander, you know, you you can be in for kind of a treat. As someone is kind of, coming back to reality and they're seeing things a little oddly. They're communicating in some humorous ways. Like, have you ever been around somebody that's coming out of anesthesia? Any of you ever messed like with your spouse, like ask them really funny questions or just kind of mess with them? Like, yeah, it's like they're laughing one minute, they're in tears the next minute. They're just kind of all over the place. Like that anesthesia gives a distorted view and so our daughter this week for, for a couple of hours, it's just every interaction, it was just like, you're moving a little more slowly. You're not seeing things clearly. You're not thinking clearly, a distorted view. That's what the enemy's trying to do to us all the time. He wants to hit us in the face on a Monday morning where we're like spun and then we're not seeing things clearly. I can't even recognize God's right there, available, loving me, caring about me, helping me deal with this situation. He looks distant. He looks removed. He looks uncaring. Or my view of myself is warped. Like I don't recognize just the place I have as his child, as his kid, dearly loved, 
equipped with what I need or my circumstances. Listen, life is difficult. This world is challenging. But I also tend, maybe this is just me, I tend to like blow up the circumstances of what's happening around me based on how I'm feeling. Things that really kind of, maybe they're this small and I could deal with them. But when it's like piled on top of four or five other things I've had going on, it just feels like the straw that broke the camel's back and I'm just completely overwhelmed. But in reality, if I could just see things clearly, I would recognize the enemy is using this to manipulate me. He's using this to mess with me. Um, there's a really incredible story in the book of Judges in chapters kind of six and seven. Gets into the story of Gideon. Anybody ever heard of Gideon? All right. And so God calls Gideon, who initially is pretty nervous and is kind of hiding out in a cave. And God calls him to go face the army of the Midianites to rescue Israel. And as the story is unfolding, God's plan is to decrease more and more the size of Gideon's army. And so he moves from thousands, which still wasn't enough. The enemy was over 120,000. He starts with like 10,000 and God reduces the numbers down to 300. Now, if I'm in Gideon's shoes, I'm looking around going, there's 120,000 of them. We're down to 3,000 here. This is looking bad. Like my view of things, and I'm going, hey, I don't even think my view's distorted. Like 120,300, odds don't seem very good here. But what God does is before the battle, he gives Gideon, he allows him to have some insight into what's really going on. And so Gideon and another guy sneak down into the camp of the Midianites in the middle of the night and they come across two guys having a conversation. And one of them is sharing this dream that he's had where this thing kind of comes rolling in and just crushes everything. And then they start unpacking the dream. And so in Judges 7, verse 14 and 15, his comrade answered, kind of interpreting the dream, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. God allowed Gideon to be reminded of the reality that 300 against 120,000 is more than enough because they were actually 301. Because their God was more than enough for them to overcome their enemy. Friends, part of how, how the enemy distorts our view is he uses something that is really there, but he gets us to see it out of perspective. You ever, you ever seen pictures of a fisherman that's caught a good fish and, and it looks really big, but have you ever noticed they hold it out like this? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Makes it look giant. The camera's there. I hold the fish out here so the perspective makes it look bigger. None of you fishermen in the room have ever done that to make your fish look bigger but it puts things out of perspective. The enemy wants to distort our view so that we look at what's happening around us and we get overwhelmed because it looks huge and God looks small. 
or we look small. God wants to give us a fresh, clear perspective to see him for who he really is and therefore ourselves for who we are in him so we can face it. So listen, what is, what is our response to distortion? When the enemy is trying to distort our view, we need to be able to see it for what it is. When I can recognize it, then I can respond with this. I can recognize the enemy's trying to distort my view of God or myself or my circumstances, and I can respond with truth and clarity. So we talked about having the belt of truth last week. That's not just like cool imagery. Like I need to have hold of the truth. And so I can remind myself what's actually true about God. What's true about him? He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's everywhere at once. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. Like this stuff, if it's, if it's just there in us, we've gotten his word in us. I can remind myself of the truth of who God is. I can remind myself of my place in the middle of this situation or circumstance. Like Jesus told me to take heart because I would face trouble in this world, but he also told me that I'm an overcomer, that he would defeat the troubles of this world, that he'd be with me in the midst of the difficulty that I face, that he would provide me with a way of escape when I'm being tempted or struggling. And so I remind myself of the truth. When I recognize the enemy's coming to distort, I replace that with clarity rooted in the truth of who God is, who he's made me to be, and that I can face what I'm facing. Because when the perspective is correct, he's more than enough. All right, so that's number one, distort. Number two, second way the enemy um, comes at us is he distracts us. So if he can't distort our view of who, who God is or who we are in Christ, he just wants to distract us. Distract us from him, distract us from walking out what God's called us to walk out. He distracts us. And so he works to distract us by keeping us too busy to be present to what really matters. This is what Jesus is talking about in his parable of, of the sower. Like we call it the parable of the sower. Really, I feel like it's the parable of the soils. Talks about the different soils. And Jesus points out in Mark chapter four, we're gonna read verse seven, and then we're gonna also skip down to Jesus' interpretation of what he was talking about in verses 18 and 19. So Jesus said, other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And then he says, here's, here's what that is. Though they are those who hear the word. So we're aware of truth. I've received re reality from the Lord of who he is and who I am in him. I've heard the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Other stuff just comes in and takes up my time, my energy, my focus, and it chokes out the word. Um, this week, I kind of rolled up my sleeves and did a little bit of weeding at the house. My, my wife is like the outdoor gardener person. She grows vegetables, she grows flowers, it's awesome. And I'm just kind of like mow the grass, get the weed eater out every couple of weeks, like move on. But there's this one row of, of bushes that kind of are, are along our driveway and 
they've just been getting overrun. Like the grass has kind of grown over into the flower bed there and it's kind of taken over. And, you know, I've been neglecting it all summer long. I look at it, I'm just like, oh man, I don't want to face that. I don't want to deal with that. So finally, I started tackling it this week. Here's the problem about weeds. (laughs) If you don't address them quickly, they grow. And not only do they grow, this particular weed, this grass, it began to grow in and around the roots of the bushes that are there. So I'm not just like pulling weeds. I'm almost like untangling the roots of the grass that have tangled up with the roots of these bushes that are there. It was a disaster. And something really stood out to me in the middle of doing it. It wasn't just that I had neglected and so the the weeds had grown. But what I realized is like, I don't care about gardening. (laughs) And so because I don't care about it, and, and I'm not going, I love these plants and they're beautiful and they produce something wonderful. They didn't have my care. They didn't have my attention. They didn't have my focus. I just neglected them. And this thing got out of control and I was left with a mess. My wife cares about her garden, cares about her flowers. And so the areas where she's really like growing stuff, she's paying a lot of attention to and she keeps up with it because she's like tending it. She loves it. She cares for it. She's taking care of that fruit that's there, those plants that are growing. And so it's not that she likes weeding. She likes her flowers. She likes her tomato plants. She cares for that. And so a weeding is a part of the process. In Song of Solomon, a love letter that ultimately is meant to be a picture of our love letter with Christ. Solomon writes in in chapter two, verse 15 and into verse 16, says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. Out of tending this love relationship, I consciously choose to be aware that there's these little foxes that can come in and rip me off, steal the fruit. That word little, little foxes, it means insignificant, small. It means young, like baby foxes. If I will tend to the small, insignificant, just starting out distractions before it gets too bad, then everything stays clear and there's fruit. But if I forget and allow the little foxes to grow to be big foxes that are no longer small and no longer insignificant, and now they're big and full grown, or I let the weeds take over, take root, take charge, I've got a mess on my hands. See, for for some of us, we already might know distraction has become a huge problem. Well, God wants to set us free of that. But sometimes the huge problem can feel overwhelming and I don't wanna start the process. And can I just tell you, if you do start the process on that big problem, it's probably gonna be a little bit painful but it's gonna be worth it to put in the work, to trim away the stuff that is distracting us from the beautiful love relationship that God wants for us. 
See, spiritual warfare isn't just, there's an enemy out there, let me go beat him. Spiritual warfare is, there is a beautiful love relationship with God that I get to enjoy and the enemy wants to rip me off from having that. And so if I will tend this relationship, if I will turn to him and foster that relationship and recognize the way the enemy wants to distract me and rip me off, the Lord will help me see that stuff when it's small and I can deal with it. Lord, this thing is starting to creep in here to be a distraction. I can see it for what it is. This is what Paul's writing about in his letter to the Colossians, chapter three, verses one and two. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. What do I do when I realize the enemy is working to distract me? I remember my affection. I reset my attention and then I can weed out the distraction. I wanna say that again. Remember my affection. Where does my affection really lie? All these other things that are just a distraction that are pulling me away. I love him, so I give him my attention and then I can kind of weed out the stuff that's blocking, that's in the way. The enemy works to distract. Number three, if the enemy can't distort our view or he can't distract us with busyness, then he wants to overwhelm us and discourage us. It's the third way the enemy works. He works to discourage us by accusation. So we beat ourselves up or just by despair, like making me feel stuck, hopeless, overwhelmed. Anybody ever felt overwhelmed? The enemy wants to cause us to despair, to be discouraged. There you go, okay. Bryant, we're talking to you for this one, man. <laughs> Listen, my hand went up. I get overwhelmed. Like the enemy comes after me in this one. I get overwhelmed. He wants to discourage us. That word discourage, it's literally like take our courage away. <laughs> I lose the ability to keep going because I just feel stuck and overwhelmed and trapped but God wants to rescue us when we're discouraged. I love this beautiful story. All the gospels record some version of this story. It was that significant to the disciples. They all made a point to highlight it. But in Matthew's gospel, he unpacks the story where Jesus walks on water. And so kind of what leads up to this moment is a lot had been going on. John the Baptist had just been killed. The disciples had just returned from being out going town to town ministering. And, and so they're tired from good spiritual work. They're worn down because someone they know and love has just been killed for his, for his faith, by the way, for, for being a faithful bro. And then all these people showed up, thousands of people showed up to hear Jesus speak when they went away to rest. And so they just had to feed the 5,000. Like they've been working nonstop and they're tired and they're overwhelmed. And so Jesus said, listen, y'all head over to the other side of the sea and I'm just gonna stay here and spend some time with the Lord tonight and I'll catch up with you later. And so he's getting away to be with the Lord. And now they're setting out to cross this ocean. They're all, or not this ocean, this sea, this lake. And they set out to cross it and it's an all night struggle. It's like on top of everything else, now we're facing even this. Matthew 14, verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. They weren't making progress. Why? They were beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. 
You ever have that feeling where it's just like, man, I'm trying to progress here and I, I can't even make forward progress because even the wind is pushing against me. They're overwhelmed. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They didn't even recognize Jesus present to help them. They're so overwhelmed by what's going on. They don't even realize that's him. His very presence was even scary to them because they didn't see him for who he was. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. And he said, come on. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. I love that. He, got, he, he was able to rise above the wind and the storms and the waves. Like, I know what's coming in a second, but we get a glimpse of what God has for us. Come out here with me and I can help lift you above the overwhelming waves that are crushing you. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Last year, when we were at uh, the beach in the fall and doing our little family trip, one of the things we love to do is on, on a day where there's a little bit more waves than normal, we get out like our boogie boards and we go out and we kind of ride the waves in and just have a blast in that. We've done it for years with our kids. And so I kind of get out there and I'm sort of like, I'm sort of like just kind of refereeing everything. Like, okay, where is everybody? All the heads are above water. Everybody's got their boogie board. We're good. And our kids are getting bigger and bigger. So they're able to, to, to swim really well and can handle themselves. Well, this last year, I just kind of noticed like we were having some trouble getting past a couple of waves to really get out there. And I noticed um, Abby in particular was getting like pushed kind of kind of back towards the shore, but also kind of down the beach, you know, it was like doing that sideways thing. And so I'm kind of just watching and keeping an eye on everything. And, and then all of a sudden I saw her and I saw that look on her face and I knew, oh, she's scared and this is bad. Like she's tired. She can't push past it anymore. And parents, you ever had like that scary moment where you just see it and like that look on her face and like, I'll be honest, like I got scared. I'm like, oh man, I got to get to her like right now. And so swim over, get to her, like nothing bad came out of it. And she just grabbed a hold of me. And then I was able to lift her up out of the waves and like could pick her up and could carry her to safety. Friends, I want you to know when you are feeling overwhelmed, when you feel like the waves are just crashing over you, he's there. He sees that look of despair on your face. Every moment of this story, he saw what was going on. They were battling against the wind. He was there immediately to help them. He even enabled Peter to like rise above the waves with him. But our, our eyes can get so fixated on what's overwhelming us that we don't see our savior standing right there with his hand out. I love how David captures this in Psalm 61. Psalm 61, verses one through three. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock 
that is higher than I. I love the imagery of that. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. Friends, when I'm feeling overcome and I'm feeling overwhelmed, my job is not to swim my way out of it. My job is to try to look up beyond the wind, beyond the waves, and see Jesus. He sees the look of despair on my face, and he's right there with his hand outstretched to lift me up. The psalmist wraps up this thought. I love just this simple way he phrases this at the end of verse seven. He says, oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. What do I do when I'm in despair? He rescues me with mercy and truth. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed because I've gotten myself in a bad situation. Well, he's merciful. He's merciful to get me out of it. He's even merciful enough to speak some truth to me to say, hey, buddy, like this is kind of what happened and here's how you got here, but I love you and my mercy is available to you and I'll help you out. And so we get lifted up. Friends, our, the way I get and the way many people that I know get when we're struggling with this one in particular, I think we can do this with all of these this morning, but with discouragement in particular is we isolate. We isolate. When we're overwhelmed, we pull back. We pull back from the Lord and we pull back from one another. And so friends, I just wanna encourage you. When you recognize the enemy is trying to discourage you and you're feeling overwhelmed, the way we can recognize and respond is instead of isolating, we call out to God and we get in the boat with some friends. Some friends that can remind us, hey, I'm with you. I'm right here in it with you. I'm in this storm with you. You're not alone. You're not the only one that's ever faced a time like this. I'm right here with you. And guess what? Jesus is in the boat with us and he can calm the storm. Number four. The enemy not only works to distort, distract, and discourage, he works to deceive us. Now, this is similar to distorting, but it, it's got some differences. He works to deceive us. How does he do that? Well, he mixes in lies with truth, or he speaks partial truths. So he'll take something that's true and mix a little bit of a lie in there with it. And so it seems palatable because I recognize some truth, but then there's a lie mixed in with it. Or he highlights just a partial truth and leaves something out. And so he uses that in order to confuse me. Look at how Satan came at Jesus. Jesus starts his ministry in the desert, being tempted by Satan. He's fasting, he's praying. And in Matthew 4, verses two through four, it says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Satan, Satan plays on his hunger. He, he plays on what he's hungry for and then tries to entice him into something he shouldn't do. And Jesus is able to see past that and go, yeah, I get that my body hungers physically for that thing, but there's something greater that I hunger for. 
And there's true satisfaction that comes from God and the truth that he has to give that sustains me. That sustains me. Then Satan comes next. I'm not gonna read this one, but the next thing he does is he then comes using scripture against Jesus. And the next few verses there, five through seven, he twists some scripture, kind of misuses its meaning to get Jesus to stumble. But Jesus sees even through that. I was thinking about this this week, like, like why does this work? Why is Satan able to deceive us? Have, have you ever recognized how easy it is to spot when someone else is being deceived? You notice that? Like you, you see someone or a group of people or just a mentality emerging and it's like, how are people falling for that? Why don't they see what's going on there? You know, we're really good at spotting that on the other side of the political aisle, right? Like, are you insane? How can you see it that way? Like we just spot it so easily. Well, yeah, I can spot it because that isn't attractive to me. I ain't hungry for that one. But it's really easy for me to miss the ways I'm being deceived. See, this, I mentioned fishing earlier. Like this is how fishing works. You're not gonna catch a fish with something it doesn't want. But you put something out there, a lure or a worm or whatever, that is attractive, smells good. That's like, it's right, ooh, this is like filet mignon is on the menu tonight. That thing that just looks so appealing. And so what does the fish do? Comes up, sees that lure operating just exactly the way that that thing that it loves to eat moves. And it comes up and it takes a big bite and it's got a hook in its mouth. That's what the enemy does. That's what deception is all about. We are all capable of falling for deception. We won't all necessarily fall for the same deceptions. Is it important to help other people recognize deception in their lives? Yeah. But I'm probably gonna have a way better shot at having grace for them and helping them watch out for the things they might be eating that the enemy's using to rip them off. If, if I first allowed the Lord to help me see the ways I'm deceived. Getting a hook in your mouth is no fun. And if we're just flippant about the way we try to help other people who are deceived, they're gonna get hurt in the process. But if, but if I've experienced what it's like to be deceived, to be caught on the hook, how painful that is, how hard it was for me to recognize it, how easy it was for me to fall for it. But the gentleness of my savior who comes and rescues me from that trouble, then it can enable me to have some love and some gentleness and some care in helping others who might be deceived. We need to recognize that when, the, when Satan, when our enemy comes with deception, friends, I want you to hear this, it's aimed at our vulnerabilities. It's aimed at what we like to eat. Do I know my vulnerabilities? Do I know my own weak spots? If not, maybe my spouse knows some of them. I could talk to her about it. <laughs> maybe my brother or sister knows. I bet my parents might know. Surely I've got a friend or a coworker that can help me see. I definitely have him. I definitely have the Lord who loves me. 
I have his spirit, his presence in my life. And so through the presence of God and through the help of others who love me, I can begin to be aware, what are my vulnerabilities? And I can spot them when the enemy's using them to lure me in. There's so many verses about this. I'm not gonna unpack each, but I wanna give you a sense of this. It's just, it's all through the New Testament. We're warned to be careful of deception. We're warned because we're prone to it. A lot of things written in the New Testament are, are written for non-believers to come to Christ, but there's a lot of what's written in the New Testament to warn people who already know Jesus to be careful. And one of the biggest warnings we receive as followers of Christ is the warning against deception. Here's a few of them. First John chapter four, verse one. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Man, don't be quick to fall for everything. Test it. Now, I love that because right here we have a warning to be careful of being deceived. But then Paul turns around in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, and he says, listen, don't quench the spirit either. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. The point isn't don't eat. (laughs) Don't not hear from the Lord. Don't, don't learn from each other. No, recognize that we need to be careful, test the spirits, but then hold on to what's good. Hold on to what the Lord has for us. Our mentality should be like the Bereans, Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now these Jews, referring to the Jews in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Listen, I wanna learn, I wanna grow, I wanna receive all that God has for me. I also don't wanna fall for deception that might go right at my particular vulnerabilities. And so I trust in the presence of the spirit of God. I spend time in his word to be able to recognize truth from a lie. And I connect with other believers, all of these 1 John, the letter to the Thessalonians, this passage in Acts, these are written to groups of people. We do this together. We help protect and care for one another. And so how do I recognize and respond to deception? We need mutual accountability with the word as our ultimate food source. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Mutual accountability with one another and scripture as the ultimate standard. That's, that's what I'm eating. That's what I'm learning to be satisfied by. So then the other food that's floating out there that the enemy's using isn't as attractive to me because I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen? Y'all ready for one more? Number five, divide. The enemy works to divide. He wants to divide church communities. He wants to divide people in marriages. He wants to divide friendships. He wants to divide. He works to divide us because he knows we are stronger when we're united. One of the things we know about Satan is he's aware of the scripture. He knows it. He quoted some at Jesus. Well, we're told in Ecclesiastes 4.12 that though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Two will withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's power 
in our unity. So the enemy wants to disrupt that. He wants to come in and bring disunity. He wants to divide so that we isolate and we become weak because we're out there on our own. But God never intended for us to be on our own. He wants us united, connected together. Unity is important to Jesus. It was one of the primary themes. His last night with the disciples, he spent time talking to them and he spent time praying for them. And one of the themes that came up over and over and over again was them serving each other, loving each other, and being united together. We get a taste of this in John chapter 17, verses 11 and 23. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. This is a prayer. He's talking to God the Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's a, that's a pretty powerful unity there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are so united in one that I can't even wrap my head around it how the Trinity works. Three in one, there's that much unity. And Jesus said, Father, would you help them, help the church, help my disciples, help my people have that same sense of connectedness with each other. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Satan knows it's powerful when we're united, so he wants to divide us. Jesus knows it's powerful when we're united because something miraculous has taken place because nobody's united like that. He said, the world will see that. That'll be the biggest testimony to the miracle of who Jesus is. When the church is united and we love each other well, when we're maintaining unity, that stands out. And it offers hope for a world in need. So there's, there's two things we can do in this realm of unity. One, we can maintain what's already there instead of taking it for granted. We build it up, we maintain it. We care for the unity that we already have. We have friendships in Christ. We have a church community. We have a marriage relationship. Like we maintain, we don't just take for granted that we're united, we care for it. And so I'm gonna give you two passages you can kind of dig into on your own. I'm just gonna read some of the descriptive words in them. Maintaining unity. We see a picture of this in Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. Some of the things that Paul highlights, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. In other words, that's where love really hits the road, right? It's like, it's not just, I have emotional good feelings towards you. No, in love, I'm bearing with you in the midst of challenges or difficulty. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. We need to foster those things in our relationships to maintain the unity that's already there and not just take it for granted. Additionally, there will be problems. There will be struggles but we are called to be peacemakers, to be ministers of reconciliation when things do go sideways. I read a portion of this this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter five, talking about how Jesus became sin for us. But it's in that same passage where Paul is highlighting what Jesus has done for us to reconcile us to the father. 
And he uses that as a launching off point to encourage us to be ministers of reconciliation. Because Jesus does this, we're called to do this with each other. We're called to reconcile with one another. And so to be a peacemaker means I'm gonna participate in repentance and forgiveness. Listen, I, I know there's, there's a lot swirling right now on this topic of like debt being forgiven. Like I'm sure you've seen the student loan debt thing and all that. And I'm not bringing this up to get political, but it, since it's fresh on our minds, we need to recognize something about forgiveness. When debt is forgiven, it doesn't go away. It's transferred to somebody else. That's how debt works. If this person isn't going to pay it, someone else does. That's how it works. Guys, this is what Christ has done for us. The forgiveness he has given me wasn't just a flippant like, oh, I wiped that away, no big deal. No, he paid the debt. He took it on at great cost. The wages of my debt is death. At great cost to him, he took that on. Friends, being a peacemaker and working for unity is hard. If I'm gonna have to forgive somebody, that's gonna hurt. Because I'm saying that pain that that has caused me, the emotional hurt, the practical, that hurts. And if I'm releasing them of that debt, it doesn't make this go away on its own. But see, by the power of Christ, who forgives me, then by his grace, he also enables me to forgive others. I can only forgive because I've been forgiven. Am I annoyed by the debt that someone else owes me? It's time for me to pause and remember the debt I have owed and the one who's paid it because he loves me. And now I can call it to him and say, Lord, even in this, you're reminding me. This taste of what it costs that hurts right now because this person has hurt me. Jesus, just a glimpse of what it costs you to love and forgive me. Thank you for taking on my debt. Lord, I need your help. Would you help me to forgive right here, right now? Lord, will you help me to choose to be a peacemaker because you love them and you love me and you want us united. And you know that we will all be stronger if we're united. And so Lord, help me be a peacemaker. This is how the enemy operates. He wants to distort and he wants to distract. He wants to discourage and deceive and divide. But thank God, he allows us to recognize the enemy's tactics and he's given us what we need to respond. And so how do I recognize and respond to division? Well, I need to be eager to maintain unity. Don't take it for granted. Man, when things are good, when you're connected with a group of people who love Jesus, when, when you and your wife are doing great, you got friendships that are going well, tend it, care for it. Don't get complacent with it. Walk in gentleness and humility. Be patient. Like, enjoy it and tend it. And when something shows up, when something goes sideways in a relationship, 
then let's choose to be a peacemaker when things are broken. Amen? I'm grateful that the Lord gives us clarity to recognize the enemy's attacks and to be equipped to respond right in the moment as needed. May we have eyes to recognize and may we be quick and ready to respond. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you, God, that you give us everything we need to recognize the enemy's tactics and to respond with the truth of your word, with the grace of your presence and linking arms with other followers of you, Jesus. Thank you that you've given us each other. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that this wouldn't just be a great message that we heard once, but Lord, would this stuff get down in us? Lord, if there's one of these five areas you wanna highlight right now where the enemy has been coming at us, help us to recognize it and respond the way you've taught us to respond. And Lord, help us to be ready just as we go about our lives this week even. When something pops up on Tuesday morning, when something hits on Thursday night, Lord, that that we could see what's really happening, that we'd be able to recognize the enemy distorting our view, distracting us, discouraging us, deceiving us, or trying to divide. And we could then see what you give us to work our way through it. We love you. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.